Hello, everybody, and welcome to Alan Robson's Grizzly Tales here on Robson's World. Please make sure that when you share anything, you mention the fact that we're here on Robson's World, and we would love you to help support the channel and keep it running. Tonight, unsolved murders. And unsolved means they're still out there where we are. Now, at least 45 young men have been killed by a person that the police claim doesn't exist. Yet in every single case of murder, close to the body, usually on a brick wall nearby, there are two dots for eyes, a dot for a nose, and a line for a smiling face. The police say he doesn't exist, yet call him the smiley face killer. It all began with the death of a 21-year-old called Patrick McNeil. He was seen drinking with his mates in a Manhattan bar. Well, afterwards, they put flyers all over the place to try and find him. Police found no evidence of foul play. However, accidental drownings are usually part of this. Now, in total, 45 drownings, all with a brick, all with a smiley face. Do you think it could really be a coincidence? It seems that the thing that he's doing is stalking college-aged people from all over the country. The FBI says that nobody's going round drowning drunken men. It just happens to be a lot of smiley faces painted on walls. But no matter how many times they try to squash the theory, the bodies keep cropping up. Now, Dorothy Jane Scott, a beautiful young woman, disappeared from a parking lot in the middle of the night in 1980. And soon after the disappearance, her family began getting phone calls. The voice on the phone said, when I get you alone, I'll cut you up into bits so no one will ever find you. That was one of the last phone calls this single mother with a four-year-old son received before she died. Yet some of the earlier phone calls, the caller was saying how much he loved Scott, trying to create a romantic sort of vibe, and then in a schizophrenic outburst he'd be vitriolic and poisonous, threatening, discussing all of the horrific tortures he was going to inflict on her, and it was fairly obvious from what he said about her, oh, you look lovely this afternoon in that floral top. It was obvious she was being stalked. Now, one day, one of her co-workers, a guy called Conrad Bostron, didn't look very well, so she suggested that he goes to hospital. And because he was feeling so poorly, she and another co-worker called Pam went to the hospital. On the way, stopped quickly to check on her son and she swapped her black scarf for the red one she was wearing. Now, they discovered at the hospital that Bostron had been bitten by a black widow spider, and while he was being treated, Scott and Pam hung around. 
When Scott went out to the hospital parking lot to get a car, Pam and Bostron waited to fill a prescription. But Scott didn't return. They did see Scott's car speeding away, but they couldn't see who was at the wheel. A week later, Scott's mother, Vera, said, Are you related to Dorothy Scott? And her mum said, Yeah. And the voice said, I've got her, and then hung up. Shortly after the calls began, Scott's father told the local newspaper, who ran a story. And they got a phone call from Dorothy Scott's killer. She was my love, but I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. I killed her. All this time, more strange phone calls to the family never traced. No cause of death was established when they found her body. But they were charred on Santa Ana Canyon Road. Wasn't just her bones, there were dog remains there too. Now, a brush fire had swept through the area. But it looked like she hadn't been killed by the flames. Whoever's out there is probably stalking somebody else right now. Have you had any strange calls? Or is there someone on your Facebook that you think, I'm not really sure about this one. Gotta be super careful. Murder these days just seems too easy. And yet, we all should have heard about the yoghurt shop murders. Why is it that we haven't? They took place in 1991. They're still unsolved, and yet most of us have not even heard about it. Back in December 1991, in Austin, Texas, there was a horrific crime. Firefighters responded to reports of smoke rising from a very popular yoghurt shop on West Anderson Lane. When they got inside, they found the brutalised bodies of four teenage girls, Amy Ayres, Jennifer Harbison, Sarah Harbison and Eliza Thomas. At least one of the girls had been raped. The bodies, three of them, were stacked on top of one another and had all been bound, tied up with their own clothing before being shot in the head with a .22 calibre handgun. It was a murder that even appalled hardened homicide detectives, four innocent young girls. There were suspects, all teenagers themselves at the time. They were charged with a crime eight years later, but there was a lack of evidence. Yet two guys called Scott and Springsteen were convicted late in 1999. The pair had confessed to the crime, saying that they committed the rape and murders while the other two stood watch. Before long, though, cracks appeared in the case. They centred on the confession and the young kids said that they'd been coerced. They were too detailed, far too detailed for some people's liking. One of the yoghurt shop's investigators, Hector Polanco, was transferred off the case after allegations of forcing confessions from them 
giving them information that they would therefore repeat on tape to make it look as if they were guilty. But by this time, the defendants had been sentenced to life and had already had about 10 years in prison. When they were released, the convictions overturned, it was obvious that the murder was still out there. There were 50 false confessions, including one from a serial killer called Kenneth Macduff. He was executed in 1998 on unrelated murder convictions, but he confessed to this on his execution day. Even though the confession was more likely an effort to try and stop his execution, it still had to be checked. Macduff was hoping for a stay in that execution, and he was disappointed and killed as planned. There really should be a film or a TV series about this, because one of the suspects, Morris Pierce, died in December 2010 when a routine traffic stop turned deadly. He was pulled over by Officer Frank Wilson and Wilson's partner and Pierce decided to try and flee the scene. He got caught up by Officer Wilson and he drew a knife and stabbed the policeman in the neck. Wilson managed to draw his sidearm and killed Pierce dead. Wilson survived the stabbing. So, was he guilty? Did he not want to be stopped because he'd already killed? Or was this just totally unrelated? But other evidence remains unsolved. Two unidentified men were seen entering the shop shortly before the time of the crime. And according to two other customers, both very credible witnesses, who had stopped in for their regular daily yoghurt Sunday, these men arrived shortly before the shop closed and remained after the door had been locked and the closed sign put on it. Now, it was common practice to close about 10 minutes before 11pm, unlocking the door to allow any late customers to leave. They are yet to identify either of the men. DNA samples discovered at the scene, including semen, didn't match Scott, nor Springsteen, nor Pierce. Were the two unidentified men just customers passing through? Unless they're found, you just never know what might happen in your shop late one night. Now, one thing that seems synonymous with ghost stories is something that needs to be resolved. Perhaps a body not buried in sanctified ground. Perhaps a body removed from their original gravesite. There are many reasons why spirit seems to show itself. And yet, being unidentified seems to be one of the reasons that would make it almost certain that some form of ghostly retribution would be sought. And this woman was found on July the 26th in 1974, lying face down on a beach towel in the sand dunes near Provincetown, Massachusetts. Her hands were missing, and her head had been crushed flat, they think with some kind of military entrenching tool. There was no clear way to identify her. She had no fingers, so therefore she had no fingerprints. Her teeth and skull and facial features were smashed. 
Who was she? Why was she slain? And all of that remains unsolved to this day. Her head crushed so badly it was almost severed from her body. And she could have died a few weeks before. But she became known as the Lady of the Dunes. The police conducted searches, looked for missing people, never seemed to get close. The teeth the police found very expensive. The dental work, including expensive crowns, done in what the police described as New York style. But because the teeth were found scattered about because her jaw had been shattered, they couldn't work it out. Both of her hands and one forearm also missing. The almost severed head was lying on a pair of carefully folded wranglers and a blue bandana. She was laid to rest in 1974. She's been dug up half a dozen times in the years since. They've tried facial reconstruction. When the body was exhumed in 1980 and again in 2000 for DNA testing, in 2010, her skull, which had not been put in the grave with the rest of the body, was put through a CT scanner to try to produce a more accurate facial reconstruction. In 2004, a serial killer called Haddon Clark said he killed her, saying that he had evidence that the police needed buried in his grandfather's garden. However, Clark was a paranoid schizophrenic and he claimed for several other murders that were proven not to be him. A lot of amateur criminologists have put forward various thoughts on this. At one time, it was thought the Lady of the Dunes may have been a victim of serial killer Tony Costa. But he hanged himself in his cell in May 74 before the woman was killed. Others say her death was caused by a mobster, Whitey Bulger, who had been known to remove some of his victims' teeth, as had been the case here. But no link between the two could be found. They tried singling out from cameras people who looked a little bit like it could have been this Lady of the Dunes. In August 2015, Joe Hill, who's the son of Stephen King, the writer, uh, he came forward with a theory. He'd been reading about the case in a book and he watched Jaws and at exactly 54 minutes and two seconds into the film, Hill spotted something strange. In the crowd, in the film Jaws, 54 minutes and two seconds in, at the far left of the screen, there was a female extra dressed in jeans, Wrangler jeans, a white T-shirt, and she had a blue bandana. And she looked almost identical to the reconstructed images of the Lady of the Dunes. What if the young murder victim that nobody has ever been able to identify had actually been seen by hundreds of millions of people in one of the greatest films ever made? but they didn't even know they were looking at a murder victim.
It seems Jaws filmed near Martha's Vineyard, which isn't far from Provincetown. Maybe the Lady of the Dunes met her untimely end during the filming. Were there any people connected to the shooting? Because extras were not tracked as carefully back then as they are today. So some people were just gathered and given a few dollars and asked to sign away their appearance. Hill said, I create fiction for a living. And he thought, it's just a ghost story. It's not really true. But when he looked onto the film, he believes he saw. And you can see too, the Lady of the Dunes. The person who killed her is still out there, still amongst us. We don't visit Germany too often, but just north of Munich lay the Hinterkaifeck farm. It was in between Ingolstadt and Schrobenhusen. The people that lived there were the farmer, Andreas Gruber, his wife, Kazilia, their widowed daughter, Victoria Gabrielle, Victoria's children, Kazilia and Josef, and the maid, Maria Baumgartner. On the 31st of March in 1922, they were found dead, all six of them. They'd been murdered with a thing that in Germany is called a mattock. It's a hand tool very similar to a pickaxe. A few days before the murder, Andreas spoke to neighbours about strange footprints in the snow that led up to the farm, but none leading back. He'd searched the farm, he couldn't find anybody, but was there someone hiding? After all, the farm was huge. He also found an unfamiliar newspaper in one of the rooms. Some house keys went missing several days before the murders. None of this reported to the police, because it's odd rather than criminal. And long after the murders had been committed this kind of information started coming forward. The bodies were discovered four days after they'd been killed when the seven-year-old Kazilia failed to show up at school. It seems that the first four victims had been lured separately into the barn and brutally murdered one by one. The second, seeing a body in the corner and running towards it, to be killed and to act as the bait for the next victim. After killing Andreas, 63-year-old, and his wife, Casilia, 72, their daughter, a widower, Victoria, and her seven-year-old daughter in the barn, the killer then went into the house, murdered the two-year-old baby, Yosef, and the maid, Maria Baumgartner, who was 44. More than a hundred suspects were questioned over the years. Decades later, as, as late as 1986, but not a single arrest was ever made. There is a memorial to the victims in the graveyard where they're buried still without their heads because their skulls were sent to Munich and they were lost in the chaos of World War II. Their spirits are not happy about this and are said still to wonder. This 
horrific and awful Hinterkaifeck farm. Do you know if you find things around the house that you don't remember being there? There's always that attic space. You know the end you never go into? The dark end. Could someone be? Hmm. Surely not. It just seems that murders in the United States of America just seem destined to be made into some kind of movie or television show. Imagine back in April the 18th, 1943. Yes, the war was ongoing, but most of America were getting on doing their normal thing. They were never attacked other than Pearl Harbor. Four local boys were poaching in a local wood called Hagley Wood, and they found a large witch elm. One decided to climb to the top, looked into the hollow trunk and found a skull. He quickly realised it was a human skull. Now, because they were on the land illegally, the boys decided not to report it, but out of guilt... The youngest of the lads eventually told his parents what they had found. When the police checked the tree, they discovered an almost complete skeleton with a shoe, a gold wedding ring and fragmented clothing. The remains of a hand was found a distance from the tree, as if maybe dragged away by some wildlife. The remains were that of a 35-year-old woman who had been dead for 18 months placing the time of death around October 1941. There was taffeta in her mouth, suggesting that she had died of suffocation, but because the country was in the middle of World War II, identifying anybody was proving difficulty. So many people were travelling across the world for the war effort. The local autopsy report wrote the word Bella, just a name chosen at random. Bella, who had been in the witch elm. Two days later, painted on one of the monuments in town, who put Bella in the witch elm? Now, who was she? How did she meet such a gruesome and grisly end? The tree murder riddle is what America called it. A lot of people called it witchcraft. Others said it was the slaughtered body of a prostitute. And then, of course, that bit of graffiti appeared. Who put Lou Bella down the witch elm? Another painted message. The Hagleywood Bella. Who did it? Who put Bella in the witch elm? These things cropping up all over the place. The graffiti was written by someone they never found. But the slogan soon spread throughout England and Europe. The actual murder may well never be solved because the gruesome discovery happened during the war, a time when thousands of crimes were committed that we will probably never even hear of. Most of the case files have been lost even the body slipped through the cracks because to this day, authorities do not know where it ended up. So we will never know who put Bella in the witch elm. 
Now, here on Robson's World, there's an incredible recording of me at a New Orleans plantation seeking out the spirits of the dead and finding all kinds of bizarre things. And I'm taking you back to New Orleans. In 1919, an axe-wielding murderer stalked the city, murdering six and attacking another dozen and many of those murdered were Italian or Italian-American, making a lot of people think they were racially motivated. A letter said to be written by the Axeman was published in newspapers saying he would kill at 15 minutes past midnight on March the 19th, but would not disturb the occupants of any place where jazz was playing. So, as you guessed, the New Orleans dance halls were full to capacity professional and amateur bands playing jazz at parties in bars, restaurants, on street corners. Not a single person died that night, but he killed regularly until October 1919, when suddenly they stopped and the Axeman vanished from the streets. In almost every case, a small hole was carved out of a door, the Axeman crawling through the opening, so small that several suspects were dismissed purely on their size, and then they would bludgeon the victim with an axe, hacking their faces into pieces. The weapon that committed the crime, often left at the scene, along with a chisel that had been used for breaking the hole in the door, now, it was a time of racism, sadly. New Orleans had been heavily victim to poor, shabby race relations. There were many Italians there, and Americans of pretty much every other persuasion seemed to want to force out their Italian neighbours. And this would lead to the largest mass lynching in history. Eleven Italian-Americans were hanged outside the parish prison in 1891. Their descendants were living in crowded slums. And a lot of people blamed the Italians for the poverty. There was a, a gang that was kind of early mafia called the Black Hand. And that increased the prejudice. The end of the First World War just made things worse. An Axeman murdering Italians was just what the Italian community needed. He used a chisel to remove part of a dawn slipped into the house of Joseph and Catherine Maggio. When Joseph's brothers, Jake and Andrew, who also lived home, went to check on the couple, they found Catherine's corpse laid over Joseph, whose head and face were hacked into pieces. Joseph reacted to the appearance of his brothers, but died from his wounds shortly after. Catherine's head rolled from her body. It had been decapitated. Her killer had used Andrew's straight razor to slit her throat so deeply, decapitation was inevitable. Andrew Maggio was arrested for the attack, but there was no evidence linking him to the crime. Over that long, hot summer, two more attacks, four more victims, 
Two died of their wounds. One, a Polish immigrant called Louis Bezuma, was a grocer, as the Maggios were. Now, this led to the speculation that the attacker was a gangster trying to extort money from them. But if he was affiliated with organised crime, he seemed nonchalant about the money because none of the victims had any money taken from them. From August the 10th, 1918, until the winter of 1919, nothing else happened. And then, on March the 10th, in the suburb of Gretna, just over the river from New Orleans proper, tragedy struck. The Cotamiglia family, Charles, Rosie and two-year-old Mary, were attacked in their home after an invader carved out part of their kitchen door. Rosie was found cradling her dead daughter in her arms and she was the only survivor. Fear spread across New Orleans. And then someone sent a letter to the local newspaper. It read, Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me and never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible. Even as the ether that surrounds your earth, I am not a human being but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axe Man. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans in my infinite mercy. I'm going to make a little proposition to your people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time that I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Now, the bloodletting still wasn't over, although no one died that night because jazz music blasted out everywhere. But there were three more victims, including one fatality in August, September and October. After October, the Axeman murders stopped. Now, there is speculation that he might have struck earlier in the decade, 1911-1912, but there's no proof of it. But the Axeman murders remain a mystery. The gruesome and grisly details of the case emanate through the years like the swinging jazz that had to be played on a night of terror. Now, as you know, I'm a big fan of facts. So, let's get totally fact. Did you know that Ludwig van Beethoven believed that his brain was stimulated if he poured ice-cold water over his head when he was working? Do you also know that the price of coffee today, compared with the overall cost of living, is exactly the same as it was in the late 17th century? Also, if you have an IQ of 180 or over, you're literally one in a million. Horses show aggression 
by pulling back their ears. The winter of 1592 was so cold that starving wolves entered Vienna and attacked men and women around their homes. Did you know that the Americans had no national anthem until 1931? Also, one of the candidates who failed at his first attempt to pass the entrance examinations for the Federal Polytechnic of Zurich was Albert Einstein. Do you know that ancient Chinese believed that the sperm came from the brain? And also, do you know that some of the dams built by beavers are up to 15 metres long? You see, we're totally fact. Also, 80% of the animals on the earth are insects. Also, you can make up for a deficiency in vitamin A by eating young dandelions. And one psychological study has revealed that women talk about men three times as often as men talk about women. Do you know that polar bears can outrun reindeer and they could beat an Olympic champion swimmer over a long-distance swim? And do you know that the first man to be in prison for a traffic offence was, ironically, the first motorist, Nicholas Cunha, who drove his steam-powered tractor into a stone wall and the tractor had a top speed of six and a half kilometres per hour. And my last two facts. Commenting on President Lincoln's famous words from the Gettysburg Address, government of the people, by the people, and for the people, the London Times remarked, anything more dull and commonplace, it would not be easy to reproduce. And finally, the necklaces of flowers that are so often seen in photographs of the Pacific Islands are very intricate to make, many of them containing 450 flowers or more. It's called a lay. I would rather have a good lay than a bad lay, certainly. But let's go back to perhaps a more traditional grisly tale. And this is about the woman who died twice. Rosemary Hill had married her husband, Jack Thompson, during an air raid in December 1940. Now, perhaps in peacetime, their courtship would have been far longer, but three months in wartime was like an eternity. It seemed as if their world was coming to an end, yet they were only at the beginning. The unthinkable had already happened, Buckingham Palace had been bombed. Coventry Cathedral was devastated by repeated raids. Birmingham, Manchester, Newcastle and Glasgow had all been hammered by German long-range bombers. Their honeymoon was a strange one. A meal at one of the few cafes still to have its windows intact. A visit to the cinema to see Charlie Chaplin's new film, The Great Dictator. And then back to Rosemary's parents' house to quietly consummate the marriage. It wasn't the best start, but they did love each other so very much and they knew that they might never see each other again. This heightened the desire, it heightened the passion and it heightened the blind terror that the future surely held. 
they'd spend almost ten days together when Jack got his orders to join General Wavell's Army of the Nile, who were about to fight their way across Libya following the Australian success at Tobruk. Jack Thompson was mentioned in dispatches some weeks later for his gallantry as his infantry regiment supported tanks, armoured cars and Bren gun carriers against masses of Italian artillery. Coincidentally, my dad was driving one of the Bren gun carriers that did that. Meanwhile, Rosemary did what so many others had to do, live from letter to letter, hoping and praying that he would come home safe. The rest of the war saw her answering the call, Women of Britain, come into the factories! And soon she was making munitions for eighteen shillings a week. Jack managed two visits home during the rest of the war, and it was in October 1943 that he discovered how sweet and sour life can be. He was sent home with a flesh wound in his arm and rejoicing that the Italians against whom he'd been fighting had made a complete U-turn and they had now declared war on Germany too. He knew that this was the beginning of the end of the war so he rushed home to Exeter to join the wife he'd spent less than six weeks with despite being married now for almost three years. He reached the house quite undamaged by the war there was no answer. He hammered on the doors of those people who had been his neighbours, finding one, a Mr Terence McIntosh, washing down his outside toilet. The old fellow smiled on seeing his young friend, and then his round face turned into the frown. Oh, you'll not know about your rosemary then, said the man. Jack shook him, shouting, Where is she? Is she all right? Mr McIntosh explained that she had fallen pregnant and there'd been some complications, so she was at a small hospital outside of Exeter. Jack rushed down the street to his cousin's house. They gave him a lift on their motorcycle and sidecar to the hospital. Rosemary was in a bad way. The doctors explained it would be a breech birth and there was a chance that the baby might not survive. It hadn't sung into Jack that he was on the verge of being a father. All he wanted was his wife safe and well. While fighting in the desert, the only incentive to survive was to get back to that beautiful brunette with the long legs and the button nose who had always signed herself Bunny. The operation was about to take place. Jack insisted on being present, but they wouldn't allow it. And the waiting was cruel. He'd waited almost two years to get back and now he was home. He was still kicking his heels. Suddenly, the door opened and a doctor wearing a surgical mask appeared at the door and explained that they were only able to save one or the other and the dreadful decision was to be his. Jack had not been aware of this child. All he knew was that it was killing the only thing in life that he treasured. Save my wife, doctor. Please save her. The doctor turned back towards the operating theatre, leaving the door squeaking back and forth as minutes became hours and still no news. It crossed Jack's mind that the doctor was rather old. Most of the younger men were overseas with the fighting forces. Perhaps he wouldn't be up to all the modern techniques. But just then, he heard a scream. 
It was Rosemary, and she was calling his name. Jack slammed through the doors, almost taking them from their rusting hinges, ran along the hospital corridor until he finally found the room where the operation was taking place. A doctor in a white overall stood over the table with two nurses. Another doctor sat next to the bed, holding an oxygen mask. He was beginning to put it away. I'm sorry, said the doctor. We tried. We really tried. But she just wasn't strong enough. Jack felt his legs go. It was as if his spine was folding like a pile of pennies. He fell to his knees, sobbing uncontrollably. The doctor gave him a sedative and put him in a quiet room away from the body of his young wife. Before Jack could come to terms with his grief, he was called to rejoin his regiment, and off he went to war, a very bitter man. His family had promised to see to everything, and the day before he left, he held his wife's body from the coffin where she'd been laid out, talking to her as if she was still alive. Jack was part of the reserves that were trying to inch their way up the boot of Italy. Hundreds of men had been massacred at Monte Cassino, where the Germans had turned a Benedictine monastery into a fortress. It had seemed an impossible barrier, with machine-gun nests hidden in the craggy Apennine Mountains, marshy ground, fog, and only a handful of decent roads. It crossed his mind that this was perfect for him. This was the place he would take his own life so he could join his wife in the hereafter. It was in January 1944 that things began to move when the Americans landed in Anzio, completely cutting the supply route to Monte Cassino. And this is when the first miracle took place. Jack and three others were in a Bren gun carrier when a mortar hit it. His three friends were blown to pieces, yet Jack wasn't even scratched. Three days later, he was ordered back to Naples, where a sniper hit Jack in the head with a bullet. The bullet ricocheted off his helmet and killed a man standing right next to him. Jack's charmed life continued, as in February 1944, the Allies decided to bomb the monastery. American flying fortresses peppered the hillside with thousands of bombs. Jack was at the base of the mountainside and one plane had discharged its bombs over Allied lanes. Almost 30 bombs landed in the middle of an encampment. 16 British soldiers died. Only two survived. And Jack was one of them. Then it was D-Day. Then it was V-E-Day. Then it was V-J-Day. The Allied victory complete. Despite Jack actually trying hard to get himself killed, he had fought the entire war with nothing more to show than eight stitches in his arm. It was September 1945 when the train, carrying almost 70 soldiers from various regiments, drew into Exeter. The band was playing, the flags flooded in the blustery wind, and everyone was there to welcome back their very own heroes. The train ground to a halt, the doors opening, spilling out the khaki warriors, the blue-suited sailors and the Royal Air Force Grey, all merging with the crowd of loved ones, welcoming them back. Jack's parents were dead. He had two cousins, but he was never close to them. And after four years so full of incident, 
he felt he was returning to a void. He stayed on the train as long as he could, rolling a cigarette and watching the scenes of tears, joy, passion and excitement. It was as if he was watching Pathé News, as if he was separate from it all. The crowds began to thin as the relatives dragged their sons, brothers and husbands away for their personal welcoming celebrations. At last Jack stood up, stretched himself and stepped off the train. He turned towards the exit from Exeter Station and saw a woman standing by the barrier. She looked familiar. Maybe it was just the blue coat. Rosemary had one just like that. The woman had hair, exactly the same colour as his wife, and those shapely ankles looked too close for comfort. He walked towards the barrier, his eyes transfixed. He thought to himself, It's a ghost! I'm seeing a ghost, yet on reaching this woman, he could see that it clearly was Rosemary. His mind was in total confusion. He reached out to her, half expecting his hand to sink into nothingness, but instead he felt her warmth, her body, her love. He swam in it, as a man lost in a desert would envelop himself in an oasis lake. How are you, Bunny? he asked then realised he had been there when she died. I, I, I mean, how are you here? You died. I know you died, he stammered. I had to make sure my baby was all right, said Rosemary. I just had to come back for you. Jack was so charged with emotion that he felt his legs going again, and the pair of them clung to each other on the station platform in a hug that was impossible to loosen. Jack didn't want to let go in case the vision disappeared. It was only when a cranky old station master tapped them with a red flag, saying, Come, come, young man, there's a time and a place for that kind of behaviour. Jack kept a tight grip of Rosemary's hand, and they began the long walk home, as they lived just outside of Whipton. On reaching their street, the neighbours rushed to greet Jack. Yet they gasped in amazement when they saw Rosemary by his side. Most of them had been at her funeral two years earlier. Some rationalised it as best they could. She must have recovered. Perhaps it wasn't her that we buried. It must be her twin sister or... He's found another woman, the spitting image of his late wife. I tracked Jack Thompson down three years before his death in 1986. And he said, it was Rosemary, all right. The baby was ours and she couldn't leave it. She'd only been with me a few weeks. She'd carried it for nine months. It was a special part of both of us. So she went with it. It was a little boy, and she had to find out where it would be so she could join it later on. She's there now. She gave me another 18 years. She died on September the 14th in 1959. That same day, the Russians landed a rocket on the moon. I thought that was appropriate. She wasn't ill. The doctors didn't know why she died, but I knew. She had had her time with me, and now she's with our son, and I'll be joining them eventually. There isn't a heaven, you know, 
But there is another place. Rosemary told me what it was like. It's just like here, except there's no death, no disease, and everyone's treated well. I told her that we should both end our lives together and go there, but Rosemary told me that you can't, because it's not up to us to make those decisions. As it had been over twenty years since his wife had died for the second time, I asked him whether he'd contacted her since. His reply was totally direct and frighteningly sincere. She never died at all, you know. We don't die. We'll leave one shell and we move on to the next one. Rosemary speaks to me all the time, and I see her from time to time too. She's not a ghost. She's as solid as you or I. She's just in another place. A place that I'll go when my turn comes around. So don't you worry about dying, son. Nobody dies. Jack Thompson died in December 1989. Or did he just move on? I received a letter from him in February 1990. It was handwritten and dated the 3rd of February. Dear Alan, I always knew you didn't believe a word that I said, but everything I told you was true. I have contacted my cousin and he nearly had a heart attack, so I thought I would get in touch with you to let you know that all is well. Rosemary sends her love and my son is now married with a family of his own. I came back for two days, but it does take it out of you. So I won't be back, but I hope one day to see you again. Sincerely yours, Jack Thompson. How do you explain that? And that is our grisly tale. So many more adventures for you to enjoy here on Robson's World. Please make it a habit to try one or two every week and enjoy. And until we are back together again with our next podcast from me, Alan Robson, God bless you, and I wish you well. <laughs>